God, we, we thank you for the, the truths that we just sang about who Jesus is and that we have uh, life in him, that we are your sons and daughters in him. We thank you so much uh, for Jesus, and I pray that, that we would live uh, all, of lives, all of our lives in, in him. We thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. I pray as we open your word this morning that we would have uh, eyes to see what you are teaching us, ears to hear, and, and hearts to respond. So I pray that you'd send your spirit so that we would uh, hear your word rightly and respond. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite things to do in the summertime is to just sit around a campfire and uh, enjoy the warmth of that. It's even better if you're actually out camping and you can go uh, enjoy it in, in the woods somewhere, but, but kind of in, in, the, in a pinch it'll do to just be in your backyard and have a little fire pit there. There's something about taking these uh, kind of lifeless limbs of a tree and, and igniting them so they become a source of heat and light and, and then just watching the, the flames dance around. It's almost mesmerizing to see. Um, but of course, it, it doesn't happen automatically, right? There's a decent amount of work that goes into uh, making a campfire. You've got to collect the wood and then if it's big, you've got to split it into smaller pieces and You've got to make the hard decision if you're going to go with the kind of traditional campfire, log cabin style uh, format or the more free-flowing teepee format of, of how you're going to put your logs together. And you've got to go get the kindling together. And then, and then you have to try to prove that you're some kind of an outdoors person by using one match to light it. And when that doesn't work, you've got to go find some lighter fluid somewhere and douse the whole thing. And then you get to use one match to light it. And, trying not to sear off your eyebrows. But after all this work, you've got this nice fire, and then you're able to just sit around it and, and enjoy it and, and, and watch it. And maybe you roast uh, marshmallows over it. Maybe you, you cook some hot dogs over it. But it's a really enjoyable thing to do. It's a relaxing kind of a thing. But of course, a fire doesn't burn indefinitely. And, and if you don't continue to feed that uh, fire with logs, sooner or later, you're going to be sitting around and, and getting a little bit cold. It's not putting off the warmth that was once putting off. And then uh, pretty soon, you're going to realize that you just have a, a little smoking pot of ash there rather than a fire. If you want that fire to continue to keep going and, and to have that warmth and have that, those flames, you, you have to actually work at it. You have to put more logs in the fire than you have to kind of blow on the coals and breathe new life into that fire. A year ago, we launched what we're calling uh, One Mission. This is our vision to be a church that makes an eternal impact in our community. And, and the vision is really very simple. It's about mobilizing each one of us to go out into the community to live as a missionary. And we challenge each of us who is a follower of Jesus to pray over one person that God has put in your life and that he's put on your heart that you care about and to be intentional about praying over that one person and trying to build a relationship with that one person, investing in them, serving them. And we had these little uh, business-sized cards printed off with this verse, Luke 15, 10. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we ask you to put the name of that one person that God has put in your heart on the back of that card and carry it with you. Put it in your wallet, put it next to your computer, wherever. So it's a reminder that we're called to live intentionally. We've got this big board out there, a big poster that just says one, and we have to take one of the markers and write the first initial of, of that one person on that as well as a sign of our commitment together as a church family. But through all this, we're saying that this is what we're about. We, we want to make a difference here. We, we realize that we are not called to be passive. Each one of us is called to go and live on mission right here, to be intentional about how we live our lives. As we launched this a year ago, the church responded really well. It, it felt like we got this fire started and people were excited about it. It felt like God was leading us and we're going after this. 
but it's easy for that fire to start to grow a little less hot over time. And what used to be these kind of roaring flames can kind of die down a little bit and become embers. So now a year later, we need to put some logs on that fire and stir it up a little bit, blow on those coals again, breathe new life into that, to remember what we are about as a church. Now, if you're here and, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or if this is all new to you, this might sound uh, odd. You might not be pleased to hear us talking about ones who need Jesus. And I get that. No one wants to be someone's little pet project or something like that. You need to understand something about us, though. Meeting Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to us. We want you to be able to experience what we have experienced as well. Jesus means the, the world to us. We believe that Jesus is for everyone. So our, our ones are not some little project that we're doing. It, it's not something that we can kind of check off a little a checkbox or whatever. Ones are not projects. These are people that are very close to our hearts. They're our family members. They're our friends. They're people that we care deeply about. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're not sure uh, where you stand with God, if you're not a church person, this is actually a really good Sunday for you to be here because we're going to hear a, a great story about how God thinks about us, no matter where we stand. And it's also a story that's going to explain why we do what we do, why we're doing this whole one mission thing in the first place. So let's hear what Jesus has to say. It's a story that he tells in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Go ahead and grab a Bible. If you want from the pew rack or grab your personal Bible, turn to Luke 15.11. Luke 15.11 is found on page 16.25 of the pew Bibles. So 16.25, Luke 15, look at verses 11 through 32. It's a great story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And as we look at this story, we're going to see, first of all, a picture of God's heart. And then we're going to see a picture of our hearts at the same time. So let's start off by, by looking at God's heart for those who are far from him. Here's how the story starts, Luke 15, 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So a very simple beginning here. You've got your three characters. You've got a father and you've got two sons. And immediately, if we're paying attention, this younger son is going to gain our dislike. Because his question, his request to his father is really a disgusting request. It's appalling, it's presumptuous. He knows his father someday is going to die. And when his father dies, he is going to get part of his father's estate. But he's not willing to wait until his dad actually dies to get his estate. So when he's asking for his inheritance, basically what he's doing is rejecting his family, give me the property that's coming my way, give me the money, and I'm going to go and do my own thing. It's a total rejection of his family. So as appalling as the request is, though, the father actually gives into it. He actually does what the son has asked him to do. He divests himself of his property and gives it to his two sons. It's about to get worse. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So it doesn't take us long to gain even more contempt for this younger son. He's done everything wrong. First of all, he has uh, presumptuously acted like a little entitled brat and asked his father for his share of the money. 
and then he rejected his family, and now he goes and totally wastes all of those resources that he's been given, and he ends up totally broke. A drought hits, and things get pretty severe for him. The only kind of employment he can find is, is sort of as, as kind of a, a hired hand. And his employment status is so bad that, that he doesn't even have enough to feed himself. He looks at the pig slop, and he thinks, well, maybe I could eat some of that. It's a pretty terrible situation. He's done this downward spiral, about as low as you could possibly go. Now, everything about this story so far suggests to those listening that this guy is getting exactly what he deserved. There is no one to blame for but himself for this. He has acted like a total fool. He's acted like an entitled, spoiled brat. He's rejected his family. He has run away from them. And then he's just wasted all of this hard-earned money. This is all his fault. You could very easily use this story as an example of how to, why you should not act like a fool. Don't act like this guy. But that's actually not what Jesus is doing with this story. We see the first turning point in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So the, the start of the turning point here is when the son realizes that home is better. I mean, he's gone on this whole journey of self-discovery. and He's going to go see the world and, and discover himself. And, but now he realizes that that whole thing didn't work out. That whole thing is empty. Home is better than where he is. And he realizes how, how stupid he has been, how foolish his behavior has been. But he also realizes that that, that behavior has, has cost him something. He can't just traipse back home and expect to be welcomed back with open arms. He has made a mistake. He has, he has used all of the resources that were coming his way. He doesn't get an inheritance anymore. He can't just come back as a son. But he still wants to be home because he realizes that his father has better provision than, than what he's experiencing currently. So he makes up this plan. At least I can be a, like, a, like a hired seasonal worker for my father. So he makes his way back home. And then we reach the real turning point of the story. Picking up again in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So the son starts to make his apology after he again comes across his father. But the focus isn't on the son anymore. The focus is not on what he has done or, or his activity or even his apology. The focus is on the father and what he does and what he says. He runs to him. Forget about convention. He throws his arms around him. When the son offers to be a hired servant, when he, when he says he sinned against him, he starts barking orders. No, no, no. You are my son. You are back. You are fully my son. Go get the best clothes. Give him some proper footwear. Put a ring on his finger. Let's throw a party. The best thing has happened. This is a fantastic scene. It's, it's made all the more powerful by how undeserved this is. I mean, the father has every right 
to be furious at this son. I mean, look what has happened. But that's not how he responds. Rather than anger, he responds in compassion. Rather than shaming him, he welcomes him back and hugs him. Rather than accepting him as a hired servant, he brings him back, receives him as a son. Rather than scolding him and then, how dare you, you shouldn't have done that, he throws a big party for him. And none of this is deserved. All of this is for a son who was a total fool. And that's the point. The point Jesus is making is that God's grace toward us is as extravagant and undeserved as the grace of the Father in this story. When God looks at people who are far away from him, including those who have outright rejected him, who have cursed his name, who have effectively shaken their fist at him, he looks on them with compassion. These are his lost sons and daughters. God loves lost sons and daughters. See, Jesus is teaching us God's heart for those who are far from him. And that's what the heart of one mission comes from. It starts with learning how God sees people and then asking God to align our hearts with his heart so that we can be part of his work in the world and in, right here in our community. That's where our theme verse comes from. It's actually from Luke 15, 10, right before this story that Jesus tells. Jesus says, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven throws a party over every single person who finds their way back home to God. This story is an example of that. And it's really a powerful picture of the love of the Father for his people, God's heart for us. God does not respond with anger toward those who are far from him. He doesn't respond with indifference toward those who have run away from him. Instead, he responds with love and compassion. There's rejoicing in this. It's a great picture of a father's attitude toward his children. Uh, several years ago, uh, one of my sons uh, decided to hide from me. And I didn't know he was hiding from me at the time until I, I called his name and I didn't get a response. So I went up to his room and I called his name again and I still didn't get a response. So I went down to the family room, called his name there, still no response. I'm thinking, okay, well, don't really know what's going on here, but uh, I need to find him. So uh, I start going through the whole house. I, I go back up to his room. I look under the bed. It's not, he's not under there. I look in the closet. He's not in the closet. I look under his bed covers in case he's hiding in there. He's not there either. Again, calling out his name. No response. I go through all the rooms in the house, and still I don't find him. And by this point, I'm starting to get a little bit panicked. I didn't hear any exterior doors open and close, but he's not there. I have no idea where he is. And, and as I'm calling out now, I'm, my voice is getting a little bit more desperate. My wife hears that, and she starts joining in the search. We look through the whole house. He's nowhere to be found. What are we going to do? And finally, on one of these trips, I go back up to his room, and I, I go into his closet, and, and I look at the laundry basket. He's in the bottom of the laundry basket. He has piled dirty clothes all around him, so he's completely invisible. The only way I could find him was because by that point, he was kind of giggling and shaking a little bit because he thought this was so funny that he pulled such a great trick. Now, what's my response when I find my son? Immediate relief. And there's a part of me that wants to, why you don't you ever do that again? But the immediate response is, oh, thank goodness. He's okay, because you know, I thought I lost him. I thought he was gone, but, but he's safe. He's okay. Immediate relief and joy. Now, that's how things look from my perspective as a father. You might hear that story and, and see it differently. You might think it was really funny that he was hiding from me and that I ran through the house panicking for a few minutes. Or you might think that he was really naughty. He was doing the wrong thing. It was bad of him not to respond and to put me through that panic. But in that moment, the only thing I care about is that he's safe. 
And that's the point. That's the point that Jesus is making. When, when God looks at those who are far away from him, what he wants is for them to be safe with him, home. These are his children. He has created every single one of us in his image. So when he sees people who are those bad people, he sees people who are his lost sons and daughters. That's his heart. God loves lost sons and daughters. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus or you're not sure where you stand with God today, know this. God loves you. He loves you more than you dreamed possible. That's the heart of God for you. No matter who you are or what you've done, you could have done terrible things or you could have done really great things. It doesn't matter who you are. God loves you with a deep passion. He's ready for you to come to him like a loving dad who can't wait to give his son a big hug again. That's God's heart. It's a beautiful picture in in this story. But even as we see a picture of God's heart, we also get a glimpse here of our hearts as humans. And remember, this, this is a story about two different sons. We often focus when we hear the story on the one son who ran away. But now we know that that younger son is back safe with his father. But there's another son in this story too. So now we're going to find out what happens with the older son. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So as it turns out, while the father is lavishing his grace and and giving hugs and, and all this celebration for the younger son, that whole time this older son is hard at work. He's doing the responsible thing. He's out in the fields. So while the younger son was out wasting all the family's resources, this older son is out working hard to make sure they don't lose the rest of those resources, making sure that they can still put food on the table. So he comes back and from all this hard work, and there's a party happening at his house. And he's saying, what is happening here? Why are all these people here? What is going on? So he makes an inquiry and he finds out, well, your little brother's back. Your father's throwing him a huge party. So the question is, well, how is this older son going to respond? Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older brother has a very different response to the return of his younger brother. See, he understands the mess that this young man has made for his family. He understands the pain that this young man has caused his father, the total foolishness of the behavior, the the shame that this has brought on the family. And then he sees his father's response, and there's no justice in this. This is not right. This is not the right response. You're endorsing his behavior. This is not okay. And hear his complaint. He's contrasting what he has done with what his brother has done. I slaved away for you. I did everything right. Every time you gave an order, I did exactly what you told me to do. I was the hard worker. I did the right thing. And I get nothing. And look what he did. He treated you as as good as dead. He took your money. He ran away with it. He spent it all on prostitutes. And you're throwing him a party. That's not the right thing. We've all been there, right? 
We've all had this sense of injustice. Maybe it was a job opening and you applied for it and you knew that, that you were better qualified for that position, yet somehow someone else gets it and, and they're not nearly as qualified. They don't have the experience. They don't have the education. This is not the right. You should have had that. It's not right. Or there's an award that's handed out in class and, and you know that you have done a better job. You have lived with integrity. You have done a character kind of thing and this other guy who's, who's cheating and doing the wrong, he gets it and you don't. Or you find out that someone else makes more money than you. Well, my job is harder than theirs. Why did they get paid more than I do? It's not fair. We've all been in this position. The father explains. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, the father explains that he's not being unfair. There's not injustice here. Everything that the father owns is the son's as well. The, the older son isn't losing anything by welcoming the son, this uh, younger brother back. He's gaining his brother back. This isn't unfair. This is necessity. This is how things have to be. This is a great day for their family. They have to throw a party because they've gained this lost son back. He's, he's safe again. This is the best thing that's happened to them. Remember again that Luke 15, 10 verse, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's what's happening here. Heaven's throwing a party for this. Now, Jesus is telling this story to people who are like the older brother. Here's the context, beginning of chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So lots of bad people are coming and spending time with Jesus. But that's a problem because we know that bad company corrupts good morals. And we know that birds of a feather stick together. And, and we know that, that all these indicators that good people shouldn't spend time with bad people. And here's Jesus, who appears to be a good person, spending time with all of these people who appear to be really bad people. This is not right. Something is not right with this situation. And, and he's even eating with them which in this cultural context means he's accepting them. He is their friend. Good church people don't do that. Good church people do not associate with people like that. And so Jesus tells them a series of stories to talk about what he is doing. He says a shepherd will have a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, one of them goes missing. So he leaves the 99 sheep and he runs after the one lost sheep and keeps looking until he finds it. And when he finds it, he rejoices. Or a woman will lose a gold coin and she'll sweep the whole house, overturn everything until she finds that one coin. And when she finds it, she calls up all her friends, I found my lost coin. This is fantastic. Or a father has two sons. One of them runs away from home and rejects the family. He's lost and as good as dead. When that son comes back, you have to throw a party. See, Jesus is giving us eyes to see what is going on here. Jesus is going after the lost children of God. See, religious people tend to not get it. Our natural tendency is to divide the world into people that we perceive to be good people and people we perceive to be bad people. And our natural tendency is then to huddle up with the people that we consider to be good people like us. Mission is not natural to good religious people. What is natural to us is kind of huddle in a bubble, feeling good about ourselves, and being glad that we're not like those people over there. But Jesus is inviting us to see things instead from God's perspective. God is like a father who, who loves his children. 
including those who are far away from him, who are wandering around without him, lost. So on the one hand, Jesus is defending his ministry. This is the mission that Jesus, that God has given him, to go after those who are lost. He should be spending time with people we perceive as bad people. On the other hand, he's offering an implicit invitation to the good religious people to join in with this. They don't have to stay on the outskirts of the party like the older son, sulking and and worried about the the justice or the fairness of the situation. There's an implicit offer here to come and to join the party. There's a celebration going on here. Great things are happening. See, the natural tendency for a church is to grow older and to grow inward. The natural focus for Christians is to become what the church can do for me. And so we sit back like older brothers, proud of how we are good people who are responsible, who work hard, and who God's probably pretty proud of. And we forget that that Jesus came for bad people. And we forget that actually this divide we make between the good moral people and, and the bad immoral people, that's a false divide. We are all in need of God's grace. Every single one of us is a sinner who needs God. Now, I'm not I'm not making this up to be hard on the church. I love the church. I'm saying this because it actually happens. This can become our focus very quickly. One church I knew, they had this really great playground for kids, and and they loved kids. They wanted to minister to kids. They wanted to serve kids. But one day, uh, someone came and vandalized it, and they came back the next day, and they saw all this mess that had been made of their nice playground. So they had a decision to make. Well, what are we going to do now? How are we going to fix this? And what they decided was to shut down the playground. You can't play here anymore. Now, these aren't bad people. These are not people who hate Jesus. They're good people with good intentions, and they had good reasons for making the the choice that they made. There was a lot of cost associated with the cleanup. There were probably liability issues that they were trying to think through here as well. They were trying to do the best with the messy situation on their hands, and that's the decision they made. But the problem is their decision was not driven by the mission that Christ has given us. Now, years later, they were able to look back at that situation and realize they made a mistake. That was a negative turning point in the history of their church. And looking back at that, they were able to change course. And, and now they've opened it all up and said, come, please, play here. It's, it's okay if you make a mess. So it's okay if things are not perfect. We are here for you. Because now, for them, they're willing to deal with a mess because the mission is more important to them. And that's the point that we have to get to. Now, I've heard the hearts of the people in this church. They're, they're hearts of gold. And we are incredibly imperfect people. But what we want more than anything is for our lives to be driven by the mission that, that Christ has given to us. We don't want to be driven by comfort. See, the older brother will see what's going on and think, well, well what happened to my church? Why, why is there this big party happening? Why are things changing? Or the older brother will, will sit in church thinking, well, well what about me? Where, where's my party? Where, where's that? That's not our hearts. We love to, to meet new people. When new people come to our church, we're, we're so happy. We want to find out their story. Who are these people? We're re- rejoicing when, when new people come here. And when there are messy situations, we're willing to deal with the messy situations. It's okay. And, and we also realize that, that we all have messy situations. As, as much as the, the good religious people like to look like we have it all together, the truth is every one of us has junk in our lives. 
Every one of us needs an incredible amount of grace and love from God to correct all those things. We stand uh, as one before the grace of God, whether we're younger brothers running off in a journey of self-discovery or older brothers stuck in pride and arrogance and and self-righteousness. We all need God's grace. I mean, Jesus came for all of us. And we realize that this is our calling. We are given a mission. We get to participate in the work that Jesus came for. He commissions us to be part of that. Go make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1 8, he says, Go and tell people about me everywhere, from here and all over to the ends of the earth. See, what that older brother in the story should have done is to go run after his brother. When his brother wandered away from home, he should have taken and not stopped until he found him and brought him back home. That's what the shepherd did, right? Leaves 99 sheep and goes running after the one until he finds it. That's what a true older brother would have done. His indifference to the loss of his brother and his anger when the father welcomes him back show a heart that is not in line with the father's heart. What we're trying to do as a church is to go outside of our church walls, to go reach those who are far from God today. And it starts by understanding God's heart. He loves lost children. We need hearts that are transformed by the gospel to share that same love so that we become not passive, but passionate about reaching those who are far from God, doing whatever it takes to join in with God's work. That's what One Mission is all about. That's what we are about as a church. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have an active role in this, that you have people in your life that you care about deeply, and God has positioned you as their friend to have an influence on them, an impact on them. You get to be part of God's work drawing them back to himself. See, one mission is about us making a commitment to live on mission every day, to go out as followers of Jesus, to make an eternal difference in our community by introducing people to Jesus. Now, if you hear all this stuff and your heart is kind of indifferent toward those who are far from him, here's your starting point. You have to ask God to soften your heart, to give you a heart that that loves those who are far from God rather than simply condemning them. A heart that is passionate about reaching them, sharing the good news of Jesus with them rather than simply judging or condemning. Pray that God would give you a new heart, a heart like his heart. Ask him to put one person on your heart that you can have an impact on. Now, for many of us, this is our heart. This is our our great passion. But the reality is when we look at our day-to-day lives, it doesn't really line up with that passion. We're so busy doing other things, it's hard for us to to actually live on mission. The task for us is to go home and to ask God to show us what needs to actually change in our life. It could be something as simple as designating one evening a week where you're going to have meals with someone else, have a family over, go out to eat with them, whatever it is. But this relational time is such an important thing. It doesn't always have to be your one, but, but live your life intentionally. Relationships are such an important part of this. Or maybe it's being more intentional with the things that you're already doing and using them to make an impact as well. So maybe you're going to go out for a run. Rather than going by yourself, take someone alongside of you. We have to make time to be able to actually spend time with people. Relationships are, are a huge part of this. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's spending time with people. In fact, he gets in a lot of trouble for it. If you're still not sure where to start, let me give you one easy, concrete thing that you can do this week. The big event, 2.0, right? This is why we're doing this. The big event is this big party that we're throwing for everybody in our community. This Saturday, right here, 
noon to two. You've got to have lunch on Saturday anyway. Come and have it with other people. It should be a really great time for us. It's a, it's a chance for people to spend time together, to grow relationships, to, to build relationships. And this isn't just for, for churchy kind of people. You don't have to be able to name all 66 books of the Bible to be able to get in, or you don't even have to know that there are 66 books in the Bible to be able to get in. You don't have to uh, kind of uh, give some kind of money. We're not charging or anything like that. It's just a, a free, everybody's invited party with no agenda other than growing relationships and, and having fun together. Invite your friend. Invite your, your neighbor. Invite your whole block, your whole baseball team, whatever it is. But come. Have fun. Make time in your life for relationships, for spending time with other people. And let's never forget why we celebrate in the first place. The reason that we celebrate is because there is a God who loves us with the passion of a father for his lost sons. Our true father who, who sent his own son to come for us to chase us down, to rescue us. And that's what Jesus has done. He died for us in our place to bring us back to God. And the reality is that if we now trust him, we are made sons and daughters of God. We've found our home in him. And that's what we get to celebrate here this morning. We have the Lord's Supper before us. And the Lord's Supper is this reminder in, in things that we can touch and see and taste that we belong to Jesus that he is our life. We're going to pass out these, these little pieces of bread, these little crackers, these little cups of juice. And what those symbolize is the body and blood of Jesus. It's a reminder that if we're to have life, it's in him. We must be connected to him. And this meal is, is for younger brothers who have tried to go off on this journey of self-discovery, running off and trying to find themselves, to find another path, who have now come to discover that, that Jesus is the only source of life. And this is a meal for those who are older brothers as well, who have always tried to do the right thing, always tried to be responsible, and yet have found that their hearts are actually not anything like God's heart anymore, and who have come to be softened by the grace of God, repented of their pride and self-righteousness, and found that in Christ they have life and access to God the Father, reconciled as his sons and daughters. So this is a meal that we celebrate together as a church. And sometimes we we celebrate this in somberness, remembering the, the price of our salvation, that Jesus suffered and died for us. And sometimes we celebrate this meal in great joy, celebrating what God has done. And that's, that's what we're doing this morning. We're throwing a, a great party because God has reconciled us to himself. We are now sons and daughters of God, celebrating the Father's love for us. So as we uh, pray over these elements, please join me in prayer that God would prepare our hearts to celebrate with great joy the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf.